This episode is sponsored by Code Health. Code connects healthcare providers to the largest community of medical coding professionals in the country with over 4,600 domestic certified coders. As a single stop for all coding needs, Code's on-demand model has solved for daily staffing challenges and coding inefficiencies by allowing providers to access the right coder at the right time while gaining insights to better manage their coding operations. To learn more about Code, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E Health.com, or email Code directly at partnerships at CodeHealth.com. Hello and welcome to Voices in Healthcare Finance. I'm Erica Grotto. This week we continue our conversation about electronic health records as Stoltenberg Consulting's John C. Smith and I discuss best practices to employ during an EHR upgrade. In our Fast Five segment, we'll talk about five ways to address physician burnout. That's all coming up after Rich and Chad talk about the latest healthcare finance news. This is Rich Daly, Senior Writer and Editor for HFMA. Hi, and I'm Chad Mulvaney. I'm a policy director with HFMA. Thanks for joining us here today on our segment for the podcast called Beyond the News, where we take you behind some recent news developments. So this week, we're going to talk about the final rule for the inpatient prospective payment system, which made some important changes to the hospital wage index, as well as technical changes to the disproportionate share hospital payment system. So what do you see there that's noteworthy, Chad? You know, I think the big ticket item out of the IPPS final rule was the the change in the wage index, where CMS is going to give providers who are in the lower quartile an increase in their wage index. And unlike the proposed rule where they were going to try to keep it as budget neutral as possible by taking from folks in the top quartile of the wage index, what CMS elected to do was just basically spread it out across all of the providers by impacting the, the base rate with a budget neutrality adjustment. Not unanticipated that CMS would finalize this policy. Obviously, there's a lot of press about the struggles that hospitals that are in rural areas, which are typically low wage index areas, are having. And certainly probably not surprising that they changed course on how they were going to pay for it or offset the cost of increasing the wage index for those providers that benefit from this. Because certainly there had been some rumblings that hospitals in the disadvantaged states and the state hospital associations were likely to file suit because this is viewed by many as being fairly arbitrary and capricious. You know, what's interesting about this, Rich, is What CMS is pointing out is that PPS hospitals are having a problem financially. And I think that's less about the wage index and more generally about the fact that Medicare, based on MedPAC's analysis, efficient hospitals have a negative 2% margin. So really not even efficient hospitals are making money on Medicare. And I don't think this change in the wage index is going to fix that problem, right? So if you think about a struggling PPS hospital in a low-wage index area, yeah, they could probably use some of these dollars to give staff raises, which is what CMS is intending for them to do. And the policy is going to be in effect for at least four years, with the theory being that four years from now, CMS may be able to sunset it because the wage index in these areas has caught up with areas with higher wage indexes. But I think that's pretty flawed thinking for a couple of reasons. So why is the four-year assumption of CMS that the wages will catch up in these rural hospitals? Why is that reasoning flawed? You know, Rich, two reasons, I think. One, obviously, these cash-strapped hospitals, 
Yes, they probably could stand to give all of their employees an across-the-board wage increase as envisioned by CMS, but their wage rates are probably more dictated by the, the going cost of labor in any given market. I would imagine that these cash-strapped hospitals probably have positions that need to be backfilled that have been on hold because of budgetary reasons. So instead of giving everybody a raise, they're probably going to go hire people at the existing rate. The other piece of this is also, at least from kind of what they're going to do with the money perspective, is I would imagine that these hospitals have a very long list of capital needs where they've got equipment that is past its expected useful life that needs to be replaced. And they're probably spending a fair amount of money keeping it together through maintenance costs. And some of that cost could be saved long term. Neither of those things are really going to increase the wage index. Yes, the the additional staff will get factored in, but if it's at the market rate, it's not going to impact the relative positioning of the hospital or the area in, in the wage index ranking, if you will. The other reason why I think this is flawed is, think about it, the wage index is a relative value system. So you're going to artificially inflate these, dis, these historically disadvantaged providers for a while. In theory, those dollars will go back into the system. However, at the end of this period, it's just going to adjust and either these hospitals will sink back to the bottom or if CMS's theory holds true, yeah, they'll rise to the top, but then you're going to create another stack of, or another tranche of disadvantaged providers. So you're going to basically get a vicious cycle of people floating to the top while CMS has put this policy in place. And after they pull it back, they'll either sink down or somebody else will sink down below them. So long-winded way of saying you know, CMS envisions possibly sunsetting this in four years. I think absent broader wage index reform that will have to be enacted by Congress, we're going to be stuck with this as just another attempt to duct tape the wage index system together. And uh, of course, that leaves us in terms of highlighted issues to discuss from IPBS with some of these uh, technical changes to dish payments. Is there anything there that hospitals should be looking at more closely? Well, I think it's, you know, the the main change here is for hospitals in the U.S., they moved to using the, the, the audited data from 2015, or at least the data that where more hospitals were audited. So, you know, you now basically have all of your UC DISH dollars riding on your 2015 data. Obviously, what, what this means is that it's going to be, it's been important as, since they've moved to sort of rolling the S10 data in to make sure that you've got a good, clean list of uncompensated care, both your your non-Medicare bad debt or your non-Medicare allowable bad debt as well, and also your your financial assistance or your charity care. But it'll be important to work with the MACs and really understand their audit criteria. And talking with members, some of them certainly had problems with inconsistent application of CMS's audit policies. And that was certainly feedback that we provided to CMS through the comment letter period. However, they seem to be unmotivated by that issue. Speaking of CMS, uh, this this week in another interesting move, uh, approved Medicare to cover nationally CAR-T cell therapy that has been approved by the Food and Drug Administration for treating certain cancers, uh, as well as off-label uses recommended by Compendia approved by CMS. So uh, what should hospitals uh, know about this? That ties in nicely with something that we saw in the in the IPPS final rule as well. So CMS increased the payment rate for therapies like CAR-Ts that qualify for the new technology add-on payment or the NTAP. And so what CMS has done is it's increased the percentage of reimbursement from 50% to 65% of either the cost of the new medical service or technology or 65% of the amount by which the cost of the case exceeds the standard DRG payment. 
one of the CFOs that I had a conversation with about this during preparation of the comment letter kind of flipply made the comment, great, so CMS is just going to keep us from losing as much money as we typically have lost on providing these services. The important thing for folks to wrestle with internally is you think about an expensive therapy like CAR-T, typically these are the types of things that are not marked up appropriately in terms of the charge because a lot of hospitals are hesitant to, in the case of CAR-T, which can have can cost a couple hundred thousand dollars when you gross it up using the cost to charge ratio. That then becomes almost a million dollars or more than a million dollars in charge that lands on a claim. A lot of hospitals are hesitant to do that. And it's it's kind of a catch-22 because if you don't gross it up appropriately, CMS doesn't then understand what the true cost is when they go to set rates when the in-tap payment sunset and the service or the technology gets rolled into the DRG payment. And what you end up doing is you get under-reimbursed for the DRG once it's incorporated. It's certainly an issue that CMS is aware of and MedPAC is aware of. However, you know, we ask them to come up with an alternative payment mechanism for things like uh, CAR-T through the comment letter. And again, you know, they, they treat it as an issue beyond the scope of the IPPS rule, but certainly that's something that I know that they are looking into. So we'll have to stay tuned for that. And, uh, and we will. We'll plan to follow these along with you as, as they progress. So thanks a lot for those insights and for uh, joining us today, Chad. As always, a pleasure. Certainly good to have you back and good to have a conversation with you about this stuff. And keep up with the latest news developments in healthcare finance policy and practice by checking out our daily news site at hfma.org forward slash news. If you're looking to take the next step in your career, turn to HFMA's online job bank. Search open positions, create a profile, and make your resume available to companies seeking qualified candidates. Start your search now at hfma.org slash job bank. Electronic health record upgrades can be time-consuming and labor-intensive, and when they're not planned carefully, make for the perfect storm of difficulty. Recently, I had the opportunity to talk with John C. Smith, the Vice President of Revenue Cycle Management at Stoltenberg Consulting, about what healthcare leaders should be thinking about when they undertake this ambitious project. The EHRs of today are very complex, um, and they involve a lot of different areas of the hospital and their features and functionality are so diverse that it's no longer an easy apply to do an upgrade. And then within each of the releases, each of the upgrade releases, there is a complex system that clients need to use to understand what that upgrade contains and then to understand from that list of what the upgrade has what they will deploy, how long each of those steps will take, and then most importantly, the different aspects of that upgrade, who would be involved in the deployment, in the testing, and the execution of that upgrade. You have to have a strong governance process already in place um, without any type of governance on uh, your procedures, you're going to be at a loss from the start. So I'd probably say governance is the number one thing that should have already been in place. And then you rely upon that governance um, to foster the relationships between IT and the department so that your upgrade is successful. So within the governance area, I think it's really important that you view an upgrade as a shared responsibility. It's not just on the IT department to make 
and upgrade successful. It is important for the IT department to show the leadership and to guide the project, but you really have to have joint responsibility with the departments that are affected by the features and functionality that upgrade contains in order for that process to be successful. And those departments should be not only knowledgeable in the system, but there should be very legal, uh, close partnerships with IT already in place. So clients that have that as a part of their foundation will see more successful upgrades. And in the case where something does not go as planned, when you fall back on those relationships is when you're able to recover quickly, more efficiently, and put things in place that mitigate the situation and then lay the foundation for a productive response to recover from something that did not go as planned. Um, I think it's really important, and I kind of touched on this, but I'll, I'll go a little further in it, is that the composition of this upgrade team will vary based on what that upgrade contains. So your basic team would include representations from your key ancillary departments like laboratory and radiology and pharmacy. It would go beyond the IT team of the analysts and programmers that support that application. It, it, it's this group multifaceted approach. When I see upgrade teams consisting of both end user representatives and IT analysts, that you get a good symbiosis of work as a result of that team composition, and then your upgrades are more successful. She says the composition of the team is just as important as the presence of the team, and choosing the right individuals is key to a successful process. You want somebody that's very familiar with the operational workflow within that given area. So if it's in the laboratory, you want somebody representing the lab in the perspective of the team that understands what happens on first, second, and third shift within the lab. Many times in a given workflow area, um, the workflows will be different based on the shift. Something on third shift may be handled totally differently than something on first shift. Some lab tests are available um, to be performed during certain time periods, maybe all of first shift and half of second shift, but they're not performed at all on third shift. So those kind of nuances, the IT department analysts are not going to understand that. So that's why it's critically important that you get somebody involved from a work area that knows those tiny nuances that can then test that new functionality for each of their staff over those three shifts and how they react to that. Um, beyond the lab, you definitely want somebody in radiology. Radiology, we often find, is a world of its own. There'll be more than one particular pack system where they store the films. Um, there may be more than one radiology system, and then you get into all of the downstream applications that those results are sent from, those radiology systems, to nursing and to extracts for month-end reports and or state reporting purposes. Um, they may be sent to peripheral devices to get information to physicians on their mobile devices, a phone or a laptop, outside of the EHR. So you've really got to have somebody from that department 
that understands just how far their data results go and how they are getting through to their end-user community. Um, and then pharmacy, that is another world of its own, and it's critical that the composition of the team include at least those three departments. Um, and those are what I call the ancillary departments. And then, of course, you have the nursing staff. You need a physician representative. Um, you don't really need anybody from hospital administration, but you certainly want to be um, interested that somebody on your patient access teams where patients are onboarded, either through the ED and also from the normal um, admitting areas, both to inpatient and an outpatient perspective, that those complements of staff are represented. And then if it's a system that goes into your different clinic settings, you need to be aware that the use of the system, let's say in a primary care clinic, such as internal medicine or pediatrics or family practice, it could be very different than that coming from a specialty clinic, such as orthopedic or cardiac surgery um, or geriatric medicine. Those nuances need to be represented on that team. And so what I've seen clients and what I advise clients to do is while the IT team is very familiar with what the system hierarchy is and how the system um, has been created, set up, what the master file settings are, they can first go through the upgrade documentation to then know who they need to reach out to, to this complementary staff of the end user population representatives to get those particular people involved in the project itself. And your question is well put as to what types of abilities or skills that those um, representatives would have. While they need to be very knowledgeable, as I've stated and given examples within their given work area, they also need to be somewhat analytical. They need to be detailed oriented. They need to be action oriented. They need to um, be someone that is not um, tentative about stating questions or asking for further follow-up. They need to be able to represent that department well so their communication abilities um, would be important. Um, but the, they need to be a critical thinker. They need to be able to take a complex task and break it down into its subparts because that's going to be important when they create their test scripts for a new function. Seeking a promotion? Motivation for your team? HFMA online education and certification programs may be the answer. Discuss your objectives with a professional development specialist today by emailing careerservices at hfma.org or learn more at hfma.org slash promote yourself. cause of physician burnout stems from the mounting administrative burdens that are pulling providers away from direct patient care. For today's Fast Five, we have five strategies for alleviating some of those burdens to give overburdened physicians the time to care for their patients and for themselves. Address inbound paper issues and dedicate staff and resources for timely management of the inbound flow of test results, clinical reports, images, and other data. Having patient information readily available can improve efficiency and speed of clinical care. Abstract data so it's in the right place at the right time for more timely and stronger clinical decisions. 
Improving accessibility can transform data and result in more actionable insights, driving operations in a timely manner and informing patient care plans. Begin EHR migrations with a thoughtful and deliberate plan of action in order to preserve historical patient data, including medication and allergy information. Ensuring the safety of patient records and the integrity of the data being migrated has a huge impact not only on the quality of care, but also on the patient-provider relationship and how the organization is perceived. Obtain documenting and coding support for physicians to decrease their after-hours work. Understand that burnout is a symptom, not an illness, and if left unchecked, it can undermine an organization's mission and goals. As burnout continues to be a major industry issue, it's imperative organizations seek solutions to better support its teams, including limiting work hours or offering flexible work arrangements, or providing outlets or activities to recharge energy levels. This Fast Five was provided by Dr. Shane Peng, Chief Clinical Services and Innovations Officer of IKS Health. Voices in Healthcare Finance is a production of the Healthcare Financial Management Association and is written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Beyond the News is produced by Rich Daly and Chad Mulvaney. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. HFMA's president and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen and reach out to us with your thoughts at podcast at hfma.org.